0: What's going on? Welcome back to the Jordan Syatt Mini Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I have a great episode for you today with Coach Kasim Hansen, a really great guy, incredible coach, super smart. And the first 40 minutes of this podcast have essentially nothing to do with health and fitness. The first 40 minutes are just us shooting the shit, talking about social media and psychology and all of that. But right around the 40-minute, 42-minute mark, we really dive into training to failure, uh, exercise intensity, different training techniques. We talk about uh, feeling your muscles. We talk about the importance of using carbohydrates effectively for your training and nutrition. So pre-40 minutes is just us having fun talking about whatever... After forty minutes, really dive into the fitness stuff. Uh, really great guy, incredible coach, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So with that being said, let's get into it. Cassim Hansen, we're live, bro. How are you? I am well, sir. How are you? Man, I'm good. This is uh, for everyone listening, this is our first time ever talking, period. This is like our first time ever like having a real conversation. I'm very excited about this. Yeah, I have no idea what to expect, so this is exciting. Me either. And it's my podcast. So uh, we're just going to figure it out as we go. But just as much for everyone listening and also as well as for me, just give me a give me a introduction, who you are, where you're from, what do you do? Just like, I want want to get to know you better. Um, So I
1: would consider myself uh, an educator at this point, retired coach. Uh, I'm the founder of N1 Education. And basically, our focus is trying to unpack the nuances to make nutrition exercise and stuff customized to the individual like that's that's kind of where we go and like me personally i'm i'm a person that loves problem solving like uh i you know when people first meet me i'm like hey you know if you were to like take uh sheldon cooper from big bang theory and like dr (laughs) house or whatever and put those together um as off-putting as that may be that kind of represents my quirks and personality um and yeah, I've just, I've just been riding that path of somewhat, you know, probably unhealthy obsession, uh, with, with this industry, but also like, Hey, how can I leverage this to be good? And,
0: and this is where I'm at. I love that. So, so could you talk about like your specialties? Like what, what areas do you specialize in? Like from what I've seen, a lot of it seems to be around like muscle growth, muscle hypertrophy, like bodybuilding. I might be wrong on that, but is that, can you just dive more into that? Well, the foundation of you know kind of what we
1: focus on, a lot of it has to do with just like biomechanics and human movement, and you can apply that to everything from sports performance to rehab to bodybuilding and stuff like that. But I think just the way that fitness is trending now, you know, it's such a you know physique-dominated industry that those seem to be the people that have gravitated towards these nuances more than than any other groups and so that's kind of what's taken off from us you know, for us from a business perspective i mean mainly we're you know we're marketing our education content towards personal trainers um mm. but also you know physique coaches so a lot of it yeah definitely has come into like hey you know these are exercises that might be more efficient for building a specific muscle or, or you know or overcoming a specific limitation and stuff like that but in reality it's it's applicable to all facets It's very foundational principle-based information, but definitely the physique crowd has been the people that have like kind of grabbed onto this stuff and really started applying it in mass.
0: That makes sense. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, myself being the outsider looking through your content and, and finding your information just from, from an outsider perspective, your content looks like it's very much geared towards that physique based crowd, mainly just like from, from me looking in, like, it's obviously, it, it can be applied to uh, sports performance and rehab and all of that, but so much of what I've seen from you has been like, you know, um, this line of pull and like having these types of discussions around like, you know, these fibers are being recruited and what is optimal for muscle hypertrophy. So that's like, it makes sense to me when you say, you know, a lot of the physique pace crowd has come to you because it from from what I've seen, it looks like that's, that's where you tend to focus. Yeah, I mean, from a business perspective,
1: when you see the people that are very interested, you just kind of lean into it, right? Yeah, and that's exactly what I've done, right? It's like, all right, if you guys are the people that want this the most, then I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna try and do that. But like, at at the foundational level of the way we teach, we teach, you know, obviously, it's like you. Social media is the place where nuance goes to die. So it's like, all right, we're just going to keep it simple and try and get as many eyeballs as possible. Once people are here, then we can throw all the context of all the different ways that stuff can get used other than just say, hey, I want to be, you know, a huge jacked man. Like, that's why I'm here. It's like, oh, no, this could also be good if you, you know, want to avoid el- elbow pain or, you know, mm-hmm. all
0: these other 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 things that you could use this information for. So could you talk to me just a little about like your personal history with strength training and, and just like with fitness in general, like how did you get involved in it and, and how did that sort of blossom into where you are now? So
1: ironically, I decided I wanted to get into the fitness industry as just a, we'll say like me kind of wanting to take some time before I was going to go back into grad school as you know, I was, a I did pre-med and biochem and, you know, I basically did a quadruple major and all of the nerdy things, but with, with an emphasis on the exercise stuff, because I just enjoyed that, you know, I enjoyed sports. I enjoyed training and whatnot. Um, and then I was like, Oh, you know, I can do personal training. Any, I, I I know all this science stuff. I can probably do it better than everybody else. Uh, you know, at these gyms or whatever. And, you know, I rolled into that and then all of a sudden that benefit that you get from being able to apply the stuff in real time and then see the response that people have, you know, like, When when you're doing stuff in a lab, you don't, you don't get to witness the aha moment or the life changing Mm. little things that happen. And I I kind of gravitated towards that. Um, And that just made me want to learn more and more from people that were like in the trenches in the field. And so instead of going back to grad school, I actually spent like 200 grand on courses over the next couple of years of just like going to every expert. You know, back at that time, it was like, you know, you had like the Paul Checks and the Tom Purvis and Charles Poliquin and all of those guys. But I was like, hey, I'm just going to I'm just going to go do this. And so essentially, you know, I started working as a personal trainer, but. I spent probably, you know, it, one week, a um, month for like two years traveling and just learning from the best people that I could, you know, and eventually I got to a point where I was like, you know what, as much as I've learned from, the, from these people, I still feel like I'm left wanting in this industry. And the it's like the carrot just keeps getting dangled a little further. And I'm like, you know what, I bet i could do something better and that's where then you know i started looking at okay how could i start putting together an education system that would have been what i wish i would have had back then mm. so that you know you know i mean it was great that I was successful enough that I could invest in all of this travel and education, but I, you know, I don't think that should be the barrier of entry to being a, you know, a good coach or, you know, whatnot in this industry. Like it should be much more accessible. So it's like, how can we get this so that we can get, you know, as much of the most valuable information to people in a very systematic and practical way that people can apply and leave. Cause one of my favorite things, sorry,
0: I'm rambling here. No, no, no. Don't apologize. I love this.
1: Well, one of my favorite like contradictory statements was I would always go to these courses and the statement that people would make afterward, which was people like, oh, my God, I I learned how much I don't know. And part of me is like, yes, it is good to know what you don't know in terms of like being aware that you don't know everything. But if when you walk away from an event, the first thing is just like, oh, shit, I don't know fucking anything. That doesn't inspire a lot of confidence Mm. when you're going to go back to work with people. And I would constantly see that as, like, I I tend to catch on to things really quick. Um, you know, I never had a, I never have a problem with school or anything. Like, you know, I, I you know, got my, you know, I passed my biochemistry exam in, like, a fourth of the time of the next fast pers- fastest person in my class. So I pick up information really easy. Um, and, you know, I can't take credit for that. It's just something naturally yeah, easy. Yeah, things just
0: make sense to you. Yeah.
1: But not everybody's that way. And so I would constantly see people that were attending the same events and seminars and stuff that I did. And they were, I would say they were, they were worse off after some of these things mm-hmm. because what it would do is, is it would give them paralysis by analysis. It would, you know, kind of crush their confidence, you know, it would make them just more unsure and hesitant. And all of a sudden the, the, they'd be doing the same job, but slower and with less confidence. And you, as a trainer, you know, if you're not really sure about something, if you're not very confident, that's going to kind of leak out onto your clients. And, you know, when we're talking about splitting hairs with these nuances in training, that's not worth the cost of all of a sudden your client not actually believing what you have to say or feeling that you know what you're doing. Um, and so I saw all of this stuff and I'm like, you know what, if what what this education like system needs to be for these people that are in the trenches needs to be something where it's like, look, you're going to go home feeling like all of a sudden you have upgraded your skill set and you're going to be more confident, right? And like, you still need to let people know that you don't know everything, right? You didn't take one weekend seminar and now you are fitness God, right? Um, although, I mean, I think that's the standard now is how most people operate <laughs> at least on social media, but we try, we try and leave people differently, but having both a perspective of like, Hey, there's more out there, but also here are things that you can confidently do and apply right away um and so that's essentially the main thing that i tried to accomplish and then just the nerdy me has taken our you know our education system to like okay and we can get it n- nitty-gritty into all these nuances so that the people that are like me that just like thirst for wanting to know more pieces of the puzzle it's like we can just keep feeding that to them you know over and over and over again but again in a way that inspires confidence and a way that gives people actual like practical tools to use in their own training or with their clients.
0: I Man, it made me think when you're talking about people or coaches going to seminars and and just leaving thinking I don't know anything. It made me think about me earlier in my career in, like, 2009, 2010, 2011, like, trying to go to all these seminars, which were great, and I learned a lot. But, man, some of the times I would find myself going down a rabbit hole that just didn't make sense. It was, it was outside of my scope anyway. For example, I remember – I will never forget when, like, diaphragmatic breathing became – everything this was not about like 2010 2011 2012 I don't know if you remember this or maybe it was just like the area that I was that, that I was looking at in the fitness industry but diaphragmatic breathing became like a huge trend and PRI and Postural Restoration Institute became this massive massive discussion in the strength and conditioning world and not to take away from the benefits of PRI and diaphragmatic breathing like there's obviously a place for it but I would go to these seminars and and I remember there were times where I was thinking, should I just be having my clients like learn how to breathe for this hour that I'm with them? (laughs) It's like they're there to move, to exercise, to get stronger. And I'm there thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to ruin their body, ruin their posture, ruin everything. If I don't teach them to breathe into this balloon properly, it was just, I, I think it's very easy, especially for younger or not even necessarily younger, but not younger in terms of age, but younger in terms of, of knowledge in, in fitness to get caught up into these, like, I need to know this. I need to know this. All these teeny tiny little nuances that really take you away from the bigger picture of let's just move, let's just exercise. Let's eat well. Let's sleep. Like the, the big bang things that really, really matter. It's so easy, especially for like the people you were saying who are, they really want to know the truth and they thirst for this knowledge, but at a certain point it can go too far. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I think when, when you're looking at information in this industry, it's so important to stay grounded. Because as we look at things, whether it be mechanistic stuff in nutrition, like, you know, when we had the insulin hypothesis or when you look at, OK, let's look at the pneumatic theories that they have in PRI and whatnot. It's very easy when all of a sudden you zoom in on the details to either like just run off into a you know a rabbit hole or start to develop a fragility mindset where it's mm. like, oh, my God, like I have to be accounting for all of these things. And there's all these bad things that could happen and you lose You lose the reality of this, like, look, people are relatively resilient. You know, we are Mm -hmm. complex systems, right? We are not as fragile as every little detail that could be pointed out as a place of possible dysfunction. And I think there were just there were multiple things colliding at that point in time where you had you know, there was the functional training movement, you, but you also had PRI and you had the mobility people coming in like right after that, you Mm -hmm. know, and whatnot. And it's like, okay, well, if you don't have X amount of hip flexion or dorsiflexion, so all of those things suffered from the, I would say like the same fault and they were zooming in so far on things that the, the bigger picture was lost, you know, and the, I would say the, the resilience that people have, you know, and the fact that, you know, there's more than one way to skin the cat, so to speak. Mm. Like all of that gets lost when you're you're looking at these things that are trying to get super nuanced and super laser focused if they don't continue real back. So like, for example, in our seminar, we teach this thing called the principle of thresholds where we're sitting here for like four days. We're taking people through the most nuanced like Mechanics for exercise stuff that you could be looking at, and then we pull them back out and we show them all the reasons where it's like, hey, but if you're not doing like these very basic things, all of the shit that you're learning is completely pointless, <laughs> right? Um, and it's, I think it's a really good thing because our principle of thresholds basically is that. Every variable that you're looking at, whether that be like recovery, lifestyle, you know, exercise selection, training volume, like you you come up with whatever list that you want. We kind of have one that we use. But it's like, look, all of those things should be brought up to a certain level of competency before you try and like, you know, climb the mountain of one particular thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Like and for most people, their limitation is just getting all of those things to a competent threshold. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like, you know, it's like. There's a bunch of analogies that you can use for this, but you just, we use kind of like this, like leaky faucet thing of like, Hey, turning on all the other ones doesn't matter if this, you know, this thing's just, the system is just leaking
0: like a sieve in another aspect. You're never going to increase the flow. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's funny. I also think, you know how there's so much fear mongering in the fitness industry, especially fear mongering towards consumers, people who are not actually like fitness professionals, but people who are fitness professionals and I put that in quotes, they'll you know, they fearmonger about everything. This is going to kill you. This is going to hurt. This is going to make your spine explode. This is going to give you can like everything is fear mongering. And a lot of that is done in an attempt to sell whatever it is that person is trying to, to sell you, whatever it is, their product is. Well, don't do this because it's going to kill you. So do this instead. I don't think a lot of coaches realize that coaches selling programs also do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I, I saw someone recently, actually a guy who I really respect overall, uh, and he might have been making a post that was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the issue is I saw a lot of comments in the in, in the comment section of people who were taking it very seriously. And basically, he was just hating on ellipticals, saying the elliptical is like the worst uh, cardio machine you can do. And and he gave a bunch of cockamamie reasons. Number one, he was like, the, the bike is a much better option than the elliptical because the elliptical is not a natural movement. And I'm thinking, well, neither is the bike, bro. And then, (laughs) and then also he said, this is what really got me is the fear mongering came and he said, and also I have a bunch of clients who've gotten hurt using the elliptical. And I'm thinking who the fuck has ever gotten hurt using an elliptical unless maybe you fell off. Like, I don't know. And he, he talked about how people got really hit pain from it. And I could see potentially some instances in which someone, maybe they have an aggravated hip and maybe the elliptical might not be a good fit for them. So cool. Go on the, go on a bike, go on a treadmill, whatever. But a lot of people in the comments were like, wow, I'm never using this machine again. Thank you so much. And I'm thinking if it doesn't hurt you, like I've seen way more people have issues from biking and from rowing than I have from elliptical, but it was just like even someone who's super science based and someone that I actually, I still respect him a lot. I was like, there's so much fear mongering to make someone think, Oh my God, I'm going to kill my client. I'm going to hurt my client. Like now I wonder how many coaches will tell their clients never to use the elliptical again because it's bad for X, Y, and Z, or it's going to kill them. Right? Like the fear mongering is not just targeted at consumers. It's also targeted at coaches as well. Yeah. With this, I think, you know,
1: if you're a student of psychology, you know that like fear motivates more than positive, right? Correct. Even, but even if you're not aware of that, Uh, the, with all of this stuff that we could use as marketing tools and whatnot, you get pushed towards that. If you're just tracking metrics, like if you're just looking at even something as simple as tracking engagement on social media, Mm. you know, there's, there's these inherent reward systems built in to push people down, making that type of content. And I think that's a, that's a real struggle because it's, you know, being somebody that, you know, was, my business forces me to have a prominent social media presence, because it's how people find out about us. And it's very easy to get sucked into the type of content that mm. gets the most engagement. But that always tends to be the more negative type of content or a yes. fear based type of content. Um, and it's, it's hard when you have something that seems to be like rewarding you with all of the likes and whatever not to not to lean into that. You have to have like this conscious awareness of like what is happening? What is the what is this psychological component that's causing this to to happen? And am I actually, you know, doing harm for you know for likes at this point by trying by trying to push that message, even though that might be the more popular message or it actually gets more opt-ins on my, you know, on my lead generator, or whatever that I'm focusing on. Um, You know, I mean marketing one-on-one find the pain points, right? Yeah,
0: dude, it's so funny. You say that I made a hard line on myself about this recently one of the types of content that is huge right now that I absolutely hate for this specific reason is when people take someone else's content and then they use it as an opportunity to trash what that person is saying and I, I noticed that this type of content actually can do very well, right? Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of people like they they take someone else's video and then they play it, and then they basically say why that person is an idiot. And then go, and there are a couple people I've seen. Uh, there's this one guy's name is dr idz dr idz he does a lot of this for nutrition based stuff and he does it super well uh there's also a woman named food science babe she does it really really well because what they do is they don't attack the individual they attack the idea and they break it down and they put a lot of time and effort into showing the research behind it and and understanding like the science behind the truth of the matter but 99 percent of the people who are doing this type of content Number one is lazy content. They just have to take someone else's content and then try and critique it. But number two is it's it's so negative. It's just so, so like inherently it's like, this person's an idiot. This is why they're wrong. Da da. da, da. I'm like, I, I had to make a hard line on myself that I wasn't gonna go down with that type of content because I, I think it actually a uh, a better style of content and better not just in terms of education, but better in terms of of my own mental and emotional health and also the mental and emotional health of people watching is just making pure education-based content like i don't have to bring someone else into it i don't have to take someone else's content rather than use their content and then bring their face in and try and trash them how about i just take the topic they're discussing and make a purely educational post about it without having to mention that person i i feel like is a much emotionally and mentally more stable way to present your material i mean the way i like I couldn't imagine going into a classroom setting and have a teacher just bashing on one person. It's, they try and educate around a topic so you can make your own educated decisions around that topic rather than bashing individuals. And I feel like from a contributing to social media perspective, it actually does a lot more harm to bring in these like these, uh, essentially online bullying type posts, which just do not do anybody
1: any good. Yeah, the reaction content I think probably is the most popular especially on TikTok and yeah, yeah. I've had I've had tons of other people that are influencers in the industry they're like dude you got to do reaction videos you got to do reaction videos. And I I kind of came to the same kind of conclusion that you did like oh, I don't want to do this. The only time I will like use somebody else's content is when it's a piece of content that's actually referencing us like it's mm. somebody's comments yes. about a thing and then i will i will use that to then be able to break down that argument and then elaborate on you know what you know add the context or whatnot that's needed to to explain our stuff but i think you're spot on it's a combination of laziness and i think it's also a big part of it too is is you know it's that whole like hey you know if you're out at the club or the bar or whatever, if you stand next to the most unattractive person there, then it makes you look good. So by, by, <laughs> yeah, by yeah. putting somebody up next to you and being like, look, you know, you, like, cause a lot of times it is the people that are doing the most ridiculous stuff. Right. Yeah. Very, yeah. very rarely do you see somebody like do a reaction video with somebody that would be like a, another influencer or somebody that would on, be on their par in terms of expertise in the field. It's always like taking somebody that they think is like, obviously going to be being made fun of like this is Mm. a Jim's mean level thing or whatever. Right. Um, And then it's like, okay. And then it's like, all right, that is a really good way of kind of making you look more like an expert or, you Mm. know, making, making your ideas look much more reasonable when you put them next to
0: somebody's ideas or a video of just like something atrocious form or whatever it may be. Right. And, And I've done reaction content like a long time ago. But I noticed how it made me feel and I paid attention to the contents and I didn't like it. To so the comments, I, I didn't like it and that's why I stopped. So for example, I made, I only made a, a handful of them, but one of them was about Drew Barrymore uh, and Drew Barrymore had the, she was running an advertisement for this lollipop, a, a lollipop that she promoted as vegetables. Like literally it's a lollipop, like essentially like I a green. One. And, and, and I made a reaction, video, you know, basically this is so stupid, but I didn't attack Drew Barrymore, I tried to attack, like, this obviously isn't fucking vegetables. But when I went in the comments, actually, before the comments, I, throughout the whole time making this, I didn't feel good about it. Even though I thought it would be helpful and it would be good, I still didn't feel good about it just because I was like, I could, in my gut, I was like, I don't like this. And then in the comments, there were a lot of people who were, like, hating on Drew Barrymore as an individual and not the actual idea of that one specific thing, and that basically... That was the last time I ever did a reaction video where I was like, this is, it's just, it's not good. It's not good to be dragging people through the mud like this. I don't like it. It doesn't make me feel good. And it takes away from the actual purpose of, of what this is supposed to be educating on. It's not about hating on this person. It's about, well, let's talk about what is being promoted and let's talk about like what this impact actually has on our health. So, so hands raised, like I've made the mistake myself and like, I, I, that's why I don't do it anymore. But also, you know, it is it is lazy content when you like, it's, it's much more difficult to sit down and try and come up with uh, an educational post that is purely educational from start to finish. That also keeps in mind people's attention spans and, and, and getting across like teaching them in a very simple and easy to understand way, just purely them finding your post on social media and then being interested enough to read it like that, that is far more difficult than using someone else's pre-made content to try and get your point across. Mm-hmm. This is your podcast, but I've but
1: I think this is something that I've been thinking about that you probably might have a better answer or more experience with than I have because you know we're talking about putting out educational content where essentially what we're saying is you know the best way to combat bad ideas is to just try and put out good ideas right mm. and just to make them as prominent as possible. Um, but knowing that the like the resources that we have, the platforms that we use, and whatnot they proliferate bad ideas Mm -hmm. at an exponentially larger rate than they do good ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, is this like at What is, is there a point in which like, Hey, in order to win this battle, you kind of have to do both. And you, you, you got to figure out where that balance is of like, you know, okay, how do I, how do I keep putting out good ideas? But how do I also kind of address directly some of these bad ideas? Right. But, in the, we'll say the most ethical manner possible. And I'm constantly kind of like, you know, moving left or right to what I think is the appropriate, you know, the balanced position to be, you know, in doing that, because, I mean, for me, you know, I, i'm not a person where it's like if somebody is critical to me like they're gonna hurt my feelings Mm -hmm. you know so if they have you know somebody has a different opinion or whatnot um and so i think my bias tends to lean towards well then i should be able to share my opinion about other people's stuff and they shouldn't take such you know Mm. offense to that but that clearly is not the case you know for there's there's for for where i am on the spectrum there's people that are the exact opposite on the spectrum right correct Um, you know and i'm i'm always sitting here like okay greater good what's the way, to, you know, do you hurt one person's feelings to potentially save, you know, thousands of people, you know, whether it be the losing time or money or potential injury or whatever, the, whatever the situation may be. And it's just, a for me, it's like a constant gray area where I, that I'm navigating in that
0: I can never seem to find a place to like sit. Dude, it's a great question. I don't think I have the, I don't think I have the answer. All I have is my answer. And, and I think, sort of how I said, you know, I I did the reaction videos a couple of times, and it just didn't feel good in my gut. It didn't feel good. I really very much believe we all have this internal built system of knowing what's right and wrong. I, I, I really think we do. Obviously, things change based on your upbringing and just who you are as an individual and your culture and all of that. But we all have an internal system of knowing like this is right or this is wrong, like misleading people we know is wrong. Like we, we, we know this. Um, I think it's very easy nowadays for people to, to get in an echo chamber and have all these people sort of riling them up. Like, yeah, you're doing great. You're doing great. And sort of block out anybody who has a different view, um, which can cloud, it can sort of mask what your own gut is telling you is right or wrong. Like you can like, almost diminish what your gut is telling you, but I'll give you an example. So yesterday I, uh, I spoke at an event in Arizona a few weeks ago and one of the guys who was attending the event, um, reached out to me cause he also lives in Dallas and, and he was like, Hey, I just listened to you at this event. I live in Dallas. I'd love to meet up for coffee. So I met him for coffee yesterday and we were walking around and this kid, he's such a sweet young kid, like young coach, really trying to get in the industry. And he's walking me through like all of these sales pitches and things that he has And, and he's like, what do you think about all this? And I said, honestly, bro, I don't think you need any of this shit. I just think you need to be a good coach and eventually people will find you and, and want to work with you. you could be, you could be a really shitty coach with amazing sales pitches, but it doesn't matter how many, how good your sales pitch is. Eventually they're going to find out you're a shitty coach and it's not going to do well. Like the first thing you have to do is become a really, 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 really good coach. And I could see, as I was saying it to him, like a weight was being lifted off his shoulders. He was like, I just want to be a good coach. Like, I don't want to have to try and sell people or, you know, like we said, like the pain points, like I hate that term, finding people's pain points for sales. The last thing I want to do when I want to help someone is like hurt them. I don't want to like twist the knife. Like a lot of marketers say, we got to twist the knife and get their pain point. No, I just want to help these people. And I really think that a lot of the vast majority of us know in our heart and in our gut, like what's right and what we should be doing. I think. Like, you know, a little kid, they'll toe the line, right? Hey, don't step in the puddle. But then the kid will, like, look at you as they're, like, trying to step in the puddle. They're, like, trying to see how far they can go before they get in trouble. It's funny and it's cute, but, like, we're humans. That's what we do. We toe the line. We try and figure out how far can we go. So me doing the reaction videos was me toeing the line. I went against what my gut was telling me, and I regretted it. And I didn't, even though that post did really, 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 really well. The posted well, like from an engagement perspective, from like all of those markers, it did well, but from an individual, like in my soul perspective, it did not do well. And, and I I really think that as long, it's okay to toe the line and go over the line depending on what you're doing, but as long as you're listening to your gut and and what your gut and your heart and your soul is telling you to do, and this might be very idealistic of me, but I think the more we do that, the the more good the cream will rise to the crowd. Like the, the the you know the cream will rise and like the 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 good will prevail. I do think it's easier for these negative, mean like the the negative posts to to proliferate and all these things to happen uh, more easily on social media. But I do th- maybe it's just me because like this is what I've done for over a decade now, and and I've been able to do very well, thank God. But I really think that more and more and more people are, are thirsting for good hearted, good soul, like helpful information like real people, not hateful and deceitful and negative. Like that's just my personal opinion. Yeah.
1: I I I agree that like as much as the the actual algorithms I think tend to favor some of the the negative content, there is the Like there's the human element on these platforms where you see that there's there's almost kind of this like little like repulsion towards Mm. that type of stuff. Right. Like people like, oh, you know, you didn't have to do that or you say that or, you know, or or whatnot. Um, I'm curious. So you you're mainly, you know, kind of going by your gut. I'm curious how much the the reaction of, you know, like if, you you know, if you post something and whatnot, how much you're gauging the public reaction is like a, as a factor in that, or are you relying more so on your, your personal feel? Because I, one of the things that I've done, you know, is, is like, I, I do these little social experiments. Like I'll, yeah. i intentionally post something just to kind of like, Hey, I'm just going to see what happens here. Oh, dude, or I whatnot, do it all right? the time. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, and I kind of use that to kind of like get a balance because I'm like, all right, cause there is my personal, you know, component of like how I feel about it. But, you know, I'm thinking about the, what matters is the impact that it, that it mm-hmm. has, right. And how people do that, you know, like for instance, I posted up just, uh, you know, um, two, two excerpts, like in a, an abstract and a discussion on this recent study, or uh, it was a review on, uh, training to failure. And in my opinion, the the abstract and then the actual discussion in the study they were it's like they were written by two different people that had mm. two different biases about the study and because what I noticed, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm in one of those positions where anytime something new comes out in research, all of the people that are like the aha, like, you know, they'll, they'll send me the thing of like, hey, look at this, you know, these people were wrong, you know, or these people <laughs> were right or whatever it is, you know, and this is one of those instances where I had people um, sending me the same study. But with a, with opposing biases, thinking that like it's, oh, so people would send me the abstract, like, oh, look, you know, failure says this. And then other people would send me the discussion, like, oh, failure says this. That's mm-hmm. so funny. So I decided, like, hey, I'm just going to throw this up, like, throw these two things up and just pull to see if people think that they're conflicting. Um, and I thought, like, that's a perfectly innocent thing to do. I'm just like, hey, what do you guys think when yeah. you read these or whatever? But it turned into a whole bunch of people then being extremely critical of the study and the authors and and whatnot um you know and actually i mean one of the one of the authors was you know eric helms who's a guy that i extremely respect you know in the industry or whatnot um and like the last thing that i wanted to do was all of a sudden have mm. like you know create a shitstorm so what i thought would have been like this is i am just i'm just doing a social experiment to see like how many people read these two things mm. and get a get Get a slightly different tone, um, you know, from those. And you know, it's hard enough for the average person to, you know, read a research study in general, right? So it's like, okay, you know, in this day and age, I think, you know, knowing that this stuff, like abstracts, are going to get they're going to get posted on social or whatnot, that has to be a part of what you're thinking when when you're writing this stuff, right? This is like, okay, I'm no longer just writing this for the guys in the like the twelve guys in the white coats that are interested in this. Like, I'm writing this. And in an essence also for people that are a little bit more like casually interested in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the sciences. Um, and so I thought, Oh, this would be a great way to figure out like, is, is that, is that goal being accomplished or not? And I, del- I deleted it and I apologize. And whatnot. really, and yeah, because I was like, all right, well, I put this up as a question. It's not having the effect that I wanted, you know, mm. even though like a lot of people are engaging with this, it's, my the purpose of me putting up is that's not the effect that it that it's that it's having. So I ended that social experiment and it was like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's like, and and I still think like, well, that was a valid thing to do, but also, just the mentality of people is just like, as soon if they took it as just like, hey, you know, there's something different about these. They just rolled with the negative consequence of that, or, or what the negative implications of that could be, and that far outweighed you know the number of people that were we'll say more sympathetic to the the challenges of you know trying to fit a you know a complex topic into you know 150 words or whatever it is that you can you know put in the abstract or whatnot and so so off balance it's like okay I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get rid of this um you know I kind of got the answer that I wanted which was yet like the average person reading those two things kind of you know got different impressions but also i got the thing it's like man if you just expose the tiniest crack in something there are so many people that are just looking to like just take that and run with it you know even it's something they they didn't care about until they read this and all of a sudden saw like oh hey here somebody did made a mistake you know um and it's like okay so now i'm even more cautious it's like if i put something out where there could potentially it could potentially be viewed critical I have to understand like man mob mentality could just just take that and just blow it completely out of proportion and not only is that bad but then every the way that everybody else takes and behaves then reflects on me yes right so now me thinking I'm just asking an innocent question it's like no I'm I'm the asshole that like you know kicked the hornet's nest and like ooh all right you know and so here I am thinking like man now I feel like a total jackass you know for you know, for put it for putting this out into the ether, um, but yeah. So I'm curious, is like, you say you do a lot of those things. So do do you kind of like, do you kind of recalibrate, you know, your impression of things based off of how people
0: are reacting? Um, I mean, I'm sure there's a level of it that's happening subconsciously, mm-hmm. where it's just like you know, based on on how people respond. But I really try and do my best to to listen to like what my own heart and soul like really says like, Hey, this is right. This is wrong. Um, I mean, even with that, the Drew Barrymore post like before I did it, it didn't feel right. And even though it got a great response in my head, I was like, and in my heart, this is not good. Like I'm not doing this again, even though like it got a great response socially and people were like, Oh, this was such a good post. This was so funny. This was so helpful. Thank you. It's like, I'm not doing this again. Next time I'll just take an ad for that lollipop. And I'll explain why it's bullshit without needing to to bring Drew Barrymore's specific ad into it. Um, and I'm not saying that's right for everybody. That's what's right for me. That's just right mm-hmm. for me. But what's interesting and in what you're bringing up, like the mob mentality, and like people looking for a slight pe- the slight crack and things, people love to watch someone fall. Mm-hmm. Like people, there's this there is like this innate thing within humans that we love to watch someone fall. It's so crazy to me. And all I can think about is um, one of my favorite movies of all time is Gladiator. It's like one of the greatest movies ever made. Have you ever seen that with Russell Crowe? Oh yeah. It's a great movie. One okay. Of Incre- one of the best movies ever. And I think of the Coliseum and I think of, of, of people literally fighting to the death and the crowds that are watching this, and screaming and excited to watch someone literally be killed in this war. And we don't have that, at least not in our culture, uh, you know, in the West. We don't have something like that anymore. But we do have social media. Mm -hmm. And I think that in many cases, like Instagram, for example, can be one of like a, a, a coliseum. And we can see someone rise and fall and even on something like the post that you made where maybe they were going after Eric or they were, who I also am a huge fan of, or they were going after whoever we can see people in the comments, just like tearing people down and trying to, br- and when if something comes out about that person, that is a mistake that they made. You have all of these people so excited to pile on and, and like to happy that that person is ruined. And, um, that for me, that like when you said you deleted it at first, I was surprised, but then when you said that people in the comments were really going after the authors, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Like you don't want to be the builder of the Coliseum. You don't want to, to ha- like be the owner of this, this, this house in which people are, are gladly tearing someone down because that does reflect on you and you're, you're allowing that to happen by keeping that post up. So that does make sense. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's the social media world is a very interesting world. And it's, uh, it's very easy to get caught up in the negativity and like the, the trying to hurt other people. And so I I do think that most people have this internal ability to know this is right. This is wrong. And uh, I think that's why a lot of people need social media breaks It's like it's draining. Like it's, it's really draining when you're just spending all day looking at it. And so much of it is negative. But one of the best compliments I can get is someone who says, Hey, I deleted the app, but I got it back just so I could see your content because your content mm-hmm. makes me like. That's one of the best compliments I can ever get because that's when I know I'm doing something right. When I'm putting content out that is, it's in line with with my heart, and with my soul, and with what I know is supposed to be good. And then someone's like, "I deleted the app because of how bad it was, but I got it just because like I need your content in my life."
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a we have a student who does you know like the van life. You know, thing like right? you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Traveling around off the grid most of the time or whatnot. You know, not on any of the socials or whatnot. But he just he just occasionally downloads the app, just to then check in, like scroll through our <laughs> stuff a little bit, and then and then deletes it again, and you know, then goes off into the you know the wilderness or whatever on its own. I'm like, all right, that's cool, right? So I love that. Like you just you just come on, you know. And a lot of times, I got to just get like a hey, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> and then and then and then it just be gone, you know, again.
0: So, so, so let's, let's dive into some fitness stuff. Um, I don't know how much you know about me or my audience, but it's, it's, you know, there's everyone from people who are complete beginners who have never worked out before and are just like, Hey, I need to get, I need to take one or two steps to get my health in check all the way to people who've been training for a while, more intermediate lifters to advanced lifters, to high level athletes, to coaches. Like there's a good array of people here. Um, one of the questions that I'd like to talk with you about is, you know, I'd like to discuss muscle growth with you. Um, but you already brought up training to failure. So let's sort of just dive on that a little bit. Like, could you talk about training to failure? The question I always get, is it good? Is it bad? Do you need to? Should you never do it? Like, could you talk about training to failure a little bit? So if you're
1: going to talk about training to failure, I think you have to simultaneously talk about volume, because I think the most important thing is understanding that the principle of these two is that they have an inverse relationship. Okay. Right. And so, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're doing harder sets, you just simply don't need as many of them. And if you're doing easier sets and you, then you can do more and you can, you can get into the nuances and you can talk about efficiencies or, you know, specific exercises or, you know, or advanced versus beginner trainees and all sorts of different layers of context and nuance that might push you in one direction towards the other. But the reality is, is that stimulus for hypertrophy is something that is a basically it's a magnitude times you know amount of exposure right so and that's what you're kind of like training to failure is like you're bringing up the magnitude was doing more sets would be increasing the amount of exposure but it's a multiplication of those two things so you can you can choose to up the dose by using a combination of those biased towards either whatever that you know that that suits your goal so i think People tend to choose like they, the, a team, like, hey, you know, if you're not training to failure, you know, then, you know, you're just a pansy and you're not going to get it everywhere. Right. And then you got other people that, you know, are like, hey, if you don't do at least this much volume or keep increasing mm. sets, then you're not going to do it. And the reality is, is that you just need to, that equation just needs to be balanced in a way that works for you and the thing that you're doing. Right. Like there are certain, like for me, I've been training, you know, 25 years, probably something like that. You know, so I'd like to say that I'm fairly advanced at this point, but there are still like there, there, there are exercises. There, there are times where it's like, okay, I just don't want to push the needle on all of these sets, and so I'm just, I'm just gonna do volume. Like that's, that's, that's the way I'm, mm. you know, feeling right now, or whatever. It's just like, yeah, I will gladly spend an extra 10 minutes in the gym, right? You know, and that, that'll work better for you know, whatever it is I happen to be going, going on, or the exercises that I have available. Like, like you know when you're looking at training to failure this is one of those things where skill and exercise selection can really can really be important because everybody knows there's certain exercises that they just feel really comfortable, like going really hard on. They feel Mm -hmm. safe. They feel controlled. Like they feel like they can really keep the, the focus on the muscle that they're trying to target. And then there's other exercises where they just don't have that, right? Like they don't feel that comfortable once they start to get fatigued or whatever it is. Right. There's lots of reasons. So I will, you know, I'll say like, we'll kind of pick your battles. Like if you, if you want to train like that, well then your exercise selection should be reflective of you wanting to, push that way. Right. So you probably shouldn't pick the most unsafe exercises if you're trying to train to the Mm. highest degrees of failure. Um, but if you're not pushing that, then maybe your exercise library opens up to a bunch of other things that otherwise might not have been as good because, you know, they're, they're safe when, you know, you're not two reps away from failure or all the way from failure. Right. And there's so many layers, like, I don't I I'm always hesitant to try and like get too nuanced in these things cuz it's like all right well he said training to failure well we're going to be here for 3 days cuz I could go for for 3 <laughs> for 3 days on this topic um but like I said the most important thing is to balance it and you will have instances where like say say a squat right the squat's an exercise where once you get tired it's very easy for your fatigue to break down it's also mm. an exercise where the load kind of restricts your breathing a little bit which which mm-hmm. can which can be a limiter to how long and how well you can perform it so i'd say if you like if you like that style of training then you need to pick exercises where you feel that you can get like that last grindy slow rep with very similar technique than you can your earlier rep and the thing that you're trying to target is the thing that makes you stop like those are the two th- this is like the two layers that you should have so my, my, my exercise should be you know safe and e- easy for me to maintain the technique and i should feel like the thing that i'm trying to stimulate is the thing that actually makes me stop the exercise right mm. if you have those two things and that's probably a place where you can push failure if it's not then you maybe want like if that's the way you wanted to train maybe you should make some modifications to your to your exercise selection if you're training further away from failure you know you might be able to use a variety of exercises that quote unquote would be a little less good or a little less efficient if we were being granular about it. But now you just make up for that with a little extra volume. And then if these are things that you just happen to like doing, then cool, that's one way to fit them in. This is just instead of redlining failure, you just back off a little bit and,
0: you know, do an extra set instead. So, you know, that was the most balanced view of training failure and muscle growth that I've heard really ever. You know, maybe not ever, but definitely in the last probably year and a half. Like, I think I've probably heard that maybe seven to 12 years ago, but it's lately in the last year and a half, this idea of you must train to failure has become so pervasive that this more moderate view has sort of been like thrown by the wayside. And the idea of volume having any role in it whatsoever has been dismissed vehemently. Like, like, and, and I see this a lot. I've seen a lot of coaches now making these videos that if your sets it do not look like with, you know, they're and like people can't see me right now, but like they're shaking with the weights and like every single set has to end with like a fucking vein bursting through your head. And like you can't like the last rep, like if you're not failing, then you're not growing. But to me, it sounds like you're saying like, no, that is one way to do it. But you could also, if maybe you're not feeling that you don't want to go to failure, you could just make it up with a little bit of extra volume and you get the same benefit. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Now I think it, you know,
1: it's important to understand there is a point of diminishing returns, right? Like it's, you still of have course, to train, yeah. like you should still be challenged by your sets, right? Mm-hmm. Because people will like to, they will take, they will take both of these to the absurd to, yeah. to, to, to make the, to make their argument. So it's like, okay, you know, you probably, you know, should be getting to where you're like within like six reps away from failure, right? Like, you know, on, on your sets. Right. But that's, I mean, that's, that's a pretty big, depending range. on the exercise, that's a, that, yeah, that's a pretty big range right now. I'm not saying that, you know, if you train like that, that it's super time efficient, you know, but that's one of the benefits of training closer to failures. You can be more time efficient because you need fewer sets, but the con of that is you have to push yourself all the way to to failure right and some people love that and some people load that. And again, mm. ex, you know, there's so many reasons. Exercise selection is like one that is very relatable to what we do because a lot, a lot of what we do is we educate people on the differences between exercises and, you know, optimal technique or whatnot. And then we can layer these principles on. So it's like, hey, if you want to train like this, this might be a more appropriate exercise versus this or inverse the principles. And then you, you basically – we're just trying to help people make decisions is, is yeah. what we're trying to do. Right. Because a lot of times it's like, all right, well, we need a lower body push exercise. That'll do. And I'm like, well, why did you choose that one over yeah. all the other ones? Right. And some people are like, well, I don't complicate it. And I'm like, you should have some, like, as my, my theory is like, as a coach, you should always have a why behind yes. all of your decisions. Right. Always. Like if you don't have a why, like, and it doesn't have to be the best why or it doesn't have to be the same why for every person but there should be a reason for all of your decisions. Otherwise, why, are you just, you know, are you just an inanimate object yeah, there that, like, 100%. reads the
0: spreadsheet? Like, you have to be able to explain why. exactly why you chose that exercise, sets, reps, inte- all of it. You have to explain why. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I think having a principled view of these things is that's what allows people to then have a decision-making process. But unfortunately, you know. Go, to, goes back to the conversation that we were having, right? Taking a hard stance in one direction and then just not mentioning the context at all, is the best way to create like viral content yes. around one of these ideas and get people to be tribal about it, right? Yes, and you will see that. Pe- that's that's why that's why these camps develop of like, hey. Train to failure. Hey, use set volume or, Hey, just use progressive overload or, you know, Hey, train, try and find the most optimal thing or, Hey, just shut up and lift, you know, and don't worry about that. Just work hard and be consistent. Like all of those things are, we'll say off the edge of what, what should be acceptable. Like, cause there, there's a rational like balance in, mm. in all of those things. Like they're all partial truths at best. Mm-hmm. Right. But that seem people want
0: to, people want an
1: absolute truth about things.
0: Yeah, it's um, much easier to digest an absolute truth. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, in, in in regard to the training to failure versus you know not training to failure, I feel like a lot of people when they hear that they either want the whole workout, every set of every exercise to be failure, or every set of exercise of every exercise not to failure. And for me personally, like I like having a little bit of both. Like I like having a couple sets or a couple like one or two exercises where I go really freaking hard uh and very heavy and push it to failure. And I like having other exercises which like maybe a little bit more volume and and I don't go to failure on those. Uh and it also depends on how I feel that day or like what I have going on later in the week. Like so much of it is dependent on on other factors outside of simply is this going to failure or is this not, or am I, am I a failure person or am I not a failure person? Like Mm -hmm. there can be as gasp, like nuance, even within
1: the workout. Mm -hmm. So let's add some of that really unpopular balanced ideas to that. Right? So here's a couple pros and cons to, you know, going to failure, not doing it at the end or having a mix or whatnot. So one of the benefits of training to failure is you, You know what actual training to failure is. So, if you're going to use Mm. RIR, which, if you're not familiar with that audience, that means reps in reserve. So, how many reps until you would have actually hit failure? So, a lot of people, if they're not trained to failure, they're trying to estimate how close they were. And I think one of the most valuable things is like, well, hey, if you take your last set to failure, your first set, or like, if, or at least, or if you do it like every so many weeks or whatnot that you take yourself, you're at least kind of maintaining that calibration for Mm. what that failure is. And I think whether you are training to failure all the time or not, actually knowing where you are on that spectrum is, is extremely valuable, right? To monitoring your progress. So Mm -hmm. I, in, in my opinion, it's like, I think beyond just the physiology, there's the utility of just kind of knowing where you are. Um, and also just that character building benefit, Of kind of routinely just kind of giving yourself the gut check of about how hard you are pushing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think those are are important things, right? But that, that you don't have to do that every set to get that. You don't even have to do it every workout, but you should do it enough to keep yourself honest with your effort and what you're actually, you know, accomplishing, you know, in your program. So one of my favorite ways to train, and I'm not saying this is the best, it just happens to be a method that I use a lot, is I will tend to have like a peak set right mm-hmm. um you know so it's like i'll have my other sets where i'm not going to failure maybe i'm increasing the load or the reps or or whatever it is i tend to like work up to where i'm going to do like a, a top set um and then what i do is i gauge my overall performance like going in like did i improve off of that top set and then you'll have people that don't like to do that and what they will do is they will say hey i'm going to try and maintain an average Like Mm. over the cross. So it's like, say I'm gonna try and do, I'm gonna try and average three RR across like, you know, four or five sets or whatnot. And then what they're trying to do is they're trying to improve, you know, how much load or how many reps or whatever they can do while while maintaining those averages. And those are those are both good. But me being on kind of like the lazy side of wanting to track things, it's like, well, if I only have to just track this one set, yeah. It's a lot easier than like this other thing, right? And I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying that, you know, for me, you know. That just is like that. That appeals to to my wanting to be a minimalist in
0: the amount of things that I have to keep track of, right? So the cool part about that is, though, and this is specifically from a muscle hypertrophy pers- uh, perspective, is you could get the same benefit from doing like sets across versus pyramid training versus reverse pyramid training. Like you could, there are different. You get essentially the same benefit as long as you're just. You're, you're keeping track and you're you're pushing yourself hard enough. Regardless of which specific type of, of modality you're using or which type of, tr- of, of intensity technique you're using or whatever it is, you can get the exact same benefit as long as you're working hard enough. Is it basically what it boils down to?
1: Yeah, and I think that's very true for the vast majority of people. Where the small details of having to be more efficient with your volume and stuff, The that starts to come into play with the people that are pushing the limits of how much training they can tolerate, Mm. right? So if if you're not really pushing yourself to like trying to fit in the most amount of training that you can and getting the fastest absolute results possible, then you can afford to have a little bit more efficiency. So you have all these buffers. You can afford to be like, yeah, I'm not going to hear. I'm going to use a little bit more volume. This exercise, it's not as efficient, but, you know, I can accommodate with that or whatever. Like that stuff kind of gets washed out. Unless you're really pushing the limits. So, the people that do need to be concerned about, hey, you know, where do I push to a failure? When? Exactly what exercises? How do I do this? Those are the people that are pushing the limits so they can't afford to have any ineffic- inefficiency in their mm. training right? Because it's not just what they get out of this set. It's how that set affects the next set and it's how this workout affects the next one and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth because they're, they're accumulating so much fatigue and whatnot because they're, they're, they're they're pushing to their limits. So in those, like, but if you're that person and you're not paying attention to the nuances of training, like what the hell are you doing spending that much time in training? Right. So if you're not that person, then I would say like your mental investment in terms of what you need to be, you know, Taking track of whatever should be, in proportion to how much time and energy you're putting into your training, right? So you don't need to be like you don't need to be like super anal and serious about every element of training, if you're not training that often and you know you're not doing that much volume and your you know your goals are not like you know, the main aspect of your life. Like if you have a real job. Right. Yeah well then maybe then, may, then maybe some of those extreme things don't 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 apply to you right if if your job is how you look then yeah you probably should be investing into the intellectual side of this and getting every ounce out of that as as possible right
0: yeah so, I, I was going to say regular listeners of, of my podcast know this podcast is not for that person this po- <laughs> like my podcast is not for the person whose life is fitness and who's who's like they're not an elite athlete most likely they're not like pushing like they're not trying to train 14 times a week mm-hmm. <laughs> like these are the people who have you know real jobs and and they, they want fitness to be a part of their life and they want to be healthy and fit and look better and feel better but I would be shocked if there's anybody listening to this that came from me that was like yeah, like I really, I'm trying to trade 14 times a week and I need to be super, super clear with this. Like, no, that's, that's not what I am. And and that's not really what, what my audience is. I I don't think so. Unless I've got a real, real misunderstanding of who's actually paying attention to what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. all, All that makes total sense. Um, what are, you know, I'm actually really interested in terms of you personally, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you made throughout your own training career not as a coach but like as as a trainee like what are some of the biggest mistakes that you made throughout your your process growing into who you have become as a as a trainee um i mean one of the things
1: early especially you know i told you kind of my history is i just jumped on the bandwagon of going and learning from all of the experts that i could find right and some of the stuff that was being taught was for the highest caliber athletes you know in the world and and whatnot um and there's you know there's this assumption that a more advanced program would and provide a greater amount of results um and same thing from a nutrition perspective or whatnot so i just did like I just did a ton of just brutal, brutal stuff when I was younger. Now, I am grateful for the character building experience mm. of like, you know, doing Charles Poliquin's like 6, 12, 25 death sets on zero carbs, you know, for <laughs> months on end, and, you know, whatnot, in terms of like, all right, you know, from a mental character perspective, that was good, right? Like, but from a health and physique perspective, like that was, that was not an, an ideal approach. So my body definitely took. The blunt for me to to learn some lessons early, um, but I'm, will say in a way I'm I'm grateful for having those experiences now because they kind of pushed me into you know mm. the directions that I am there. But I would say that was one of the big ones is thinking that like you could, thinking that you could jump ahead of how advanced you are. And then that would pay dividends versus just like, hey, what you need to do is you need to do everything relative to to where you are as an individual Mm. and, and, and a trainee now. Right. Like you don't you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with applying nuances, even in the most beginner type clientele. Um, you know, cause at worst case scenario, if you're doing things appropriately more, you get the same results, but maybe it's a little bit better, right. Or maybe it's a little bit more enjoyable or people are a little less sore, or, you know, injury prone than, than they would have been. Um, but that's different than saying, well, if you want, if you, if you want better results instead of, you know, just working harder and being consistent at something relative to you, why don't we jump you into what the most like advanced
0: people, right? right? Right. Um, and Which I think that you had a greater risk of injury. Like that's mm-hmm. uh, like not safe at all. Yeah. So that
1: was one of the biggest ones, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how you are, like, you know, I'm almost a 40 here. And so like a big part of my training career happened during like the low carb, you know, era. Right. And so just, just doing brutal training on low carbs was just not not awful, good like awful, it was, it was yeah. awful right and you know i th- you know in in my opinion like that that definitely had a negative impact on on my health for a, for a good period of time right mm. just because of the the stress that i was doing now now that's not to fear monger people like hey whatever but like keep in mind i was training a ridiculous amount and I don't think that I don't think it's responsible for athletes that are training a ridiculous amount to be trying to do that no. low, especially with like resistance training like it's different if you're talking about endurance based sport and like being super fat adapted like cool you know but you know if you're talking Even about that, that are, yeah. just doesn't make sense to me Yeah, I I don't agree with it either, but I don't want to be like it's completely impossible, you know, because there are those people that have found, you know, some success that way. So I don't want to, like, you know, deny that. But, yeah, it would not be the way that I would coach somebody for for sure. You know, but I would say it's even more it's even more nonsensical for somebody. that's like doing resistance training like six times a week and they're doing like, you know, more advanced training. It's like, man, like. When I when I just said okay, this is enough, and threw carbs back in, it's like okay, that was like okay, that was a huge like shift, in like the way my body felt and and whatnot, and I think you know, I grew up doing sports where it's like you know, waters for the weak type mentality. (laughs) So there was this there's this gauge of like hey, in order for you to be making progress, there's a certain amount of suffering has to come so you can see how these things kind of layer on top of each other right mm-hmm. like it's like okay you know so all of these things are kind of feeding it into each other and so that was another aspect of that and probably why i stuck with that type of training and nutrition longer than i should have thinking that mm-hmm. like okay this sucks but you embrace the suck like that's right you know, um you know and there's a small element of truth to that but it isn't it isn't this parallel relationship where the the more you're suffering, then the better something is. is no. Working. And one of the things that I've really tried to focus on is like, hey, how can you actually, you know, get the same results with the least amount of of discomfort, both mentally and and physically for people, right? Because ultimately, people are going to be much more successful that way. Because then, when it does come time that somebody is actually going to need to push a little bit harder for the result that they want right? Then you have that space mentally or physically to push them. But if stuff's just unnecessarily hard, then now you put them in a situation where they don't maybe don't have the capacity to push any harder, right? And that's a terrible place to be as somebody that's trying to reach their goals when they feel like they're at their limit and they're not making the progress that they want, right? It's very easy to become defeated
0: that way. Could you talk about the role of carbohydrates in in someone's training maybe not someone who's training outrageous amounts but someone who's training three four times a week and and why it's important for them like to make sure that they're getting carbs like and to not be at least at at least not scared of carbs and and how it could actually benefit their training yeah so when we're training basically
1: carbs are just the, the easiest and most available food source for the muscles like the what you store in the muscles you store Carbs is glucose and then as glycogen in the muscles and basically that that fuel source is right there with the actual contractile tissue of the muscles. It's 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 right there. You don't we store some fat in our muscles, but not much and it takes a lot longer for that fat to become energy for those muscles. So when you're doing weight training, even if you're not like a serious weight training, weight training, relatively speaking, is a high intensity exercise, right? Like if, if, even if you're just a casual person that goes in and does some, you know, bicep curls on the weekend, you couldn't do those bicep curls for five minutes. It's still a mm. high intensity activity. And so you need a very readily available fuel source. And that that carbohydrate that's stored in the muscle is the easiest fuel source to get to therefore it takes the least amount of stress response from your system to get that right and it allows you to perform the best um, so when you you know when we train we deplete a just dis- disproportionate amount of glucose to any other fuel source right so that means that okay if we then have carbohydrates in the diet what actually happens is your muscle cells basically they open up little transporters to take the you know, take the carbs right out of your blood and replenish that and thinking that, hey, this is probably gonna happen again to us, right? And they'll actually start to store a little bit more of that glycogen, which, you know, if you care about how you look, right, that glycogen pulls in water and it actually makes those muscles look fuller. And fuller muscles actually, you know, they feel better when you train them because you can kind of feel the contraction a little bit more. So you kind of see this cycle of like things that are feeding into each other. It's like, okay, I get better performance. While I'm doing, you know, while I'm doing the training, because the energy source is freely available, it's right there, right? I replenish that, and that actually helps me recover. But also, going into my next section, it's going to improve not just my performance but my feel. And so, one of the things that we'll use is like, we'll use like a type of training that we call like, you know, it's like incomplete rest method is a popular thing. And, it, um, Vince Gironda to it with his thing. It's like, you would do eight sets of eight with 30 seconds in between. So basically Jeez. it's just like just rapid fire, but it's not like eight sets to failure. You would choose like a 15 rep weight, right? So you, okay. you start with that. And so the goal was, is that like your last couple sets actually ended up being hard right? Mm-hmm. But essentially, this type of like, okay, taking very short rest intervals means that you're going to be very dependent on that local fuel storage, right? And then the response of that is you tend to like see this like, nice pump that like kind mm-hmm. of lasts and you like you can all your muscles just soak up all the carbs. And one of my favorite things to do is when you have people that quote, unquote, like feel skinny fat, right? Mm-hmm. a lot of people will say like, Oh, okay, we're going to do a bunch of cardio, we're going to do like, you know, whatever the circuit training and whatever. And I'm like, look, These people right now, they're nutrient partitioning in the wrong direction, meaning their body is taking their food and it's pushing it into fat instead of muscle. So when they go and they train, they probably have a harder time feeling their muscles. They don't feel very strong. They don't feel very weak, right? And if you diet them and they shrink down, right, what happens is they might actually feel like they're starting to look – worse Mm. in their initial stages of dieting so one of my favorite things this is one of those things of like hey how can we just make this experience better for people like hey if we actually train these people like this which would be associated with more of an advanced bodybuilding training but for this person what it's actually going to do is it's actually going to start changing their experience in the gym and give them kind of an immediate change of kind of how their body feels. And mm. not just in their clothes, but in their skin, right, which is immediately going to be a confidence boost. So it's like, okay, hey, this is – so we're like literally – it's like, hey, if you got people that are like skinny fat, instead of like saying, okay, well, we're going to do a low-carb boot camp or you know we're going to do all this or whatever, like why don't we actually – do something that's immediately going to enhance their performance in the way they feel and kind of give them, we'll say a a little bit of a, like a, like a perma pump, you know, because the worst part about dieting, especially if you're somebody that has a, you know, has some amount of muscle, is that the first thing that happens is your muscles shrivel up, right? Yeah, exactly. And then it's like, okay, you go through this phase of dieting where you just feel like you're looking worse and worse and worse because you're losing that water faster than you're losing body fat. And this is a way to kind of like kind of try and fight that a little bit. And I think that's especially important for people that like, man, their muscles were kind of dehydrated and you know, they you know, they don't naturally store a lot of that. It's like, hey, let's put a direct stimulus into their body that's like really gonna result in them feeling like, man, this 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 training thing, this is this is this is doing something. I'm I'm looking better, I'm feeling stronger, like there's a there's a change in my physical presence.
0: Um kind of a tangent there, but no, no, I love you that you know. I think Cause that if you want to get people to be consistent, they have to be able to believe in the process and believe in their ability to do it. And if you're, if you're what you've done is you've found a, one of the a method that will get someone who might not believe in their ability to succeed. They're actually, like they see Oh, this could actually work like this. I, I could actually make this happen, which is going to lead them to be more consistent. I love that. Yeah. I think carbohydrates
1: are a underrated tool in helping people to perform better in training, but also just making the experience better Mm -hmm. right um you know one of one of the popular things to hate on you know these days is is bcaa's right you know Mm -hmm. like ah bcaa's are trash like if you use that you're wasting you might as well just pour your money in the toilet or whatever right um you know but a lot of the rationale for wanting to take branched genome amino amino acids um carbohydrates kind of fit some of that same some of those same mechanisms Mm -hmm. um but they're significantly cheaper and taste a lot better um so like when it comes to like Yes. Carbohydrates. Yes, yeah. Yes, much. Yes. BC, yeah. BCAs taste terrible. Um, yeah, they make like the only reason they taste like good. asshole. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, but if, when you're looking at things like, Hey, you know, which somebody could invest in a pre-workout or an intra-workout or, or whatnot. And it's like, man, carbohydrates are probably the most economical performance enhancer, you know, that you could have. Right. You mm-hmm. know, the next one maybe being like caffeine, you know? So yeah, especially, you know, for people that, for people that want to have their training be a bigger part of their of, the, of, the, of their transformation, um, then fueling the training becomes a lot more important. There's some people that want to just do the least amount of training and they want to let their diet be the main driver. And there's other people where it's like, look, I would rather – I enjoy spending – time in the gym, I would rather be able to fit into more session, another session, train a little bit harder and eat a little bit more food and still accomplish, you know, the same results or maybe, maybe, you know, the same amount of fat loss, but with a little bit more muscle gain or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it's like, man, carbohydrates can be one of the things that you can play with to really kind of enhance that experience for that person. Because it's, again, it's an extremely efficient fuel source and it does have a big impact on the way that you feel. Like if you force people into stuff, you could be like, oh, how much do carbohydrates impact performance? In a research study that's not the same as when people can voluntarily choose mm-hmm. eh, i'm not going to go to the gym today or i'm not going to do that set or i'm not going to do those reps like correct a lot of this stuff definitely impacts how people will perform in the real world at least in my
0: experience dude a hundred percent it's so funny man like any time in my training when I've reduced carbs deliberately, like my my training always goes to shit, and not just my actual training, but my motivation to train, mm-hmm. like like the ugh, like I just don't want to go. But as soon as I eat some damn carbs, I'm I feel so hyped up, and and this goes for all types of training. This goes for for whether it's strength training, whether it's my jujitsu, whether it's cardio. Any time I reduce carbs, I feel like dog shit. And any time I bring them back up, I feel amazing. Like I, even last night, like I had, a, I had a, a lot of carbs before. I was just doing zone two cardio on the elliptical for an hour, and dude, my RPMs were significantly higher than uh, several days ago. And I I happened to have fewer carbs just because it was a, it was a like a crazy day. Um, it's re- like so many people are scared of carbs. But understanding that being able to eat them and how well they fuel you and how they feel your performance and your motivation, like it's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. This is
1: where, like, I think you know, when when people are they're so focused on the seco, like you know, just calories in, calories out. Yeah, and whatnot, yeah. you're like, oh, and I'm like, hey, look, you storing carbs is not the same as storing fat. So like, there there are periods, like, you know, where it's like, hey, like right now. You, what you need is you need your muscles to be at either a maintenance or a surplus. Like fat loss is a deficit specific to your fat tissue, mm. right? Not to every cell in your body, right? Like, mm-hmm. And that's 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 the nuance of trying to find the right calorie and the right training amounts and the right macro split. is like, how do I find this place where the cells that I need to feel good and perform are getting enough fuel, but I'm still in a deficit relative into – you know, total energy, the fat cells. Yeah. Right. You know, so it's like, okay, because that that's what it is. Fat loss is like, okay. And what training does is it, it basically, it forces you to put a little bit more nutrients into your lean tissue and run some of those metabolic processes. Right. So a, it's a way of shifting your, your metabolism and, and whatnot in a way that's like, Hey, the, the food that I'm taking in now, this deficit is being more biased towards the fat tissue versus my say like my, you know, my thyroid or my vast, my quad or whatever, just expending <laughs> a little less energy throughout the day, right, to conserve. It. It's like, no, if you train, you kind of force your body to keep fueling and running these processes that it would otherwise maybe downregulate, you mm-hmm. know. Um, Which
0: is so, why it's so important not to, well, when a lot of people approach fat loss, they try and eat as little as possible to lose weight mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. But you just explained perfectly why it's such a bad idea because when you eat as little as you possibly can to lose weight as fast as you possibly can, you're inherently not fueling certain things that need fuel. It's like having a more sustainable approach will allow you to fuel your muscles and and be able to still be in a calorie deficit to lose fat but also be able to at least somewhat enjoy the process.
1: Yeah, your goal is, is that your calorie deficit is as biased towards your fat as much as possible and not
0: just a deficit on your life. Yes. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. I love that. Um, I know we've been on for a while. I do have one more question. I'd like to hear you talk about if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, you recently posted on your Instagram about, um, the importance of not solely focusing. you were talking to coaches saying not solely focusing on having your clients feel their muscles. Mm -hmm. And, And I wanted to get your thoughts in terms of a lot of people, they really like, they need to feel their muscles working and their muscles burning. Can you talk about like when it's good, when it's bad, like when when it's taken too far, when it's not taken far enough, just in terms of feeling your muscles work and what it actually means? Yeah.
1: So as a coach, this is where it's really useful to have a little bit of competence in we'll say biomechanics and exercise selection and stuff, because there are a variety of things that change our sensation in exercise. Okay. So there's a difference in a way a muscle feels when you stretch it versus the way a muscle feels when it's all balled up and shortened. Right. So like you're never going to have the like if you if you flex your bicep like and you like, you know, pull it up towards your head or whatnot and it's like really short and it's all balled up that feeling. You're never going to feel that in and it, position where you're stretching the muscle it's going to be a completely different sensation and there's also a different sensation that you get when a muscle starting to build up metabolites and fatigue Mm. right um and so sensation itself is one of the most complex things and it's actually one of the things that you know we don't even completely understand all the time in terms of like well why am i feeling this like you know for the longest time it's like well, why do your quads burn like well is it the, is it the lactate or is it the lactic acid? Are those the same thing? Are they not the same thing? Like, it's <laughs> a pH, like, well, you know, all this stuff, right? And it's, okay, well, all right, well, what, what, would, what do those feelings mean and are those feelings good? Because in addition to there being positive associations that can cause us to feel something, there's also negative things. So instability increases how much we'll feel a muscle, mm, right? So yeah. that, you're right, um, increased co-contraction. And co-contraction is basically when you have – muscles that are opposing each other to stabilize the joint. So like if you, if you flex your arm, just holding it out and you just squeeze your arm, what you're doing is you're co-contracting your biceps on one side are contracting against your tricep and they're contracting and you will feel both of those muscles very prominently when you're actually flexing your arm, you'll actually probably feel like when you go to the gym, just do this test, stand in front of the dumbbell rack and just squeeze your arm and feel your bicep, then grab a dumbbell and do some curls with it. There's no doubt that your biceps are lifting that dumbbell, like they have to be. The dumbbell's not moving up and down by magic. Your elbow flexors are lifting the dumbbell. <laughs> but what you're going to find is is that you're going to feel them less when you're actually lifting a dumbbell and doing something productive, versus then when you were just standing there and just squeezing your arm, because of the different types of, you know, just just the way the nervous system is handling those contractions, differently. So, if you use sensation as a guide towards what's a good exercise or when a client is doing something well they could potentially either like set a bar that's unreasonable because it's like hey i'm never going to feel the bottom of the squat like i am the top of a leg extension it's never going to happen so if i think that i'm supposed to feel my squats like i feel my leg extensions mm. then i'm never going to feel like my squats are working my quads because they never feel that way right um or it could be it's like you could literally and there was a period a big period probably you know, around like 2015 ish to probably, you know, 2020 ish or whatever, like a five year span where a lot of people were chasing like exercises that just gave better sensation. And a lot of them were basically really unstable, like bad joint compromise position exercises. But you, f- you, you would feel them like they would, they would almost be like crampy. And
0: mm-hmm. it's because
1: literally your body was like, why are we here? Right. This is not good. Um, you know, like uh, uh, Tom Purvis, who's a, he teaches physics in this industry, he used to give this like analogy of like, look, if you're walking across ice, like what do you do? Like you tighten everything up and you bring it in and you're going to feel your inner thighs and all of that stuff, right? But it's not because you're, you know, you're getting a great workout shuffling your feet across <laughs> the ice, right? It's because it's a very unstable place. you to be and your body your nervous system is you know has an inherent anxiety to it you know from the instability so sensation is an extremely complex thing and so if you don't have a compass from knowledge of biomechanics and exercise selection to know what sensation you're correlating with and that that's it's actually pushing you in a positive direction then you don't know that so the two reasons to summarize that i don't like using sensation Especially like, you know, in a personal training thing, in terms of like, hey, I want you to feel this, is one, the sensations are going to vary. And, you know, you, you're setting a standard in one exercise that maybe you won't necessarily achieve. And that might inherently put in the client's mind that, oh, I'm not doing as good on this, or this exercise is better than that. When in reality, they're just different. They're just challenging the muscle in different ways or different positions, et cetera. Um, and that's, that's too much nuance to pass on to your client. To be like, mm-hmm. hey, this is a short position exercise, so <laughs> I expect it to feel like this, you know, like you know, um, you know, you know. You can listen to you can listen to some of the, you know, the most articulate bodybuilders describing how they have intuitively started to feel the difference in these sensations and exercises and stuff like that, right? But these are the people that they live in the gym, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they this this is their job. For the the person that is just into this, you know, this is for fitness and this is a health journey. They they don't need to be, you know, they don't need to be sitting there and mentally analyzing every rep of every exercise and trying to like, you know, say like, well, what is the universe saying to me about this bicep curl? You know, <laughs> I don't know. So the other reason is, is that, you know, without that compass, sensation could lead you to selecting poor exercises or poor technique um, just as easily as it could good if you
0: don't know how to distinguish between what is causing those sensations. Got it. And and so is this one of the reasons why you like rep, reps in reserve in terms of you can you can you go based on how difficult it actually is to complete with good technique as opposed to hey I can feel this X amount. Yes. Yes. Right.
1: And you know the more the more objective and the less subjective you can make the things you're tracking, then then the easier that becomes. Right. And you know the subject that with with reps in reserve it's still subjective and there is the like, Hey, if you're a little bit tired or whatnot, like you might be like, Oh, well things feel a little bit harder today than they otherwise would have. So while that does put in some, a little bit of inaccuracy into the measurement system. Um, it also at the same time gives you a little bit of biofeedback that may be important that maybe Mm. today's not the day. Right. Um, so again, the, the, the more you're not trying to push the envelope, the more, you know, You you can buffer these things, and this is where you throw the consistency card in. Like, look, if you're training consistently, not every workout needs to be a 10 out of 10, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's that's a fairy tale anyway, right? So it's like, okay, like if you just accept that, right, and then you know you just do your best to be consistent, then on average you're going to be there, right? If you're the people that need every workout to be as close to 10 out of 10, well, then educate yourself to be more nuanced. This is the only way to really cover it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, man, that. That makes total sense, and I, I want to say I really appreciate you coming on. Um, could you tell everyone where they can follow you and where they can find you, and and uh, what you have to offer? Yeah, so are uh, m- mainly on Instagram. Um, I'm Coach
1: underscore or Coach underscore Kassim K A S S E M, um, but. My two the two companies that I run is M1 Education and M1 Training, and they are exactly what they are exactly what they sound like. M1 Education is where our courses are. It's mainly for you know people that are interested in learning more of the nuances, or they're looking at this from a, from a professional level themselves. And M1 Training is our hey, this is the simple like hey, you want a few tips on how to compare, you know, what's this exercise do versus that, you know, articles on the basics of this stuff or whatnot. Like that's you know that's that's where we kind of have our you know, more entry level information.
0: I love it. Well, thank you so much, man. Uh, I'll I'll put your Instagram in the show notes so people can follow you there. Mm But um, thank you very much. I appreciate you. And I hope to have you on again. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Have a good one. Have a good one. That wraps it up for this episode of the Jordan Syatt Mini Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. They really help the podcast a lot. So huge thank you to everyone who's done that already. And if you'd like to join the Inner Circle, you can do that at www.sfinnercircle.com or just go to the link in the show notes. Have a wonderful day, and I'll talk to you soon.